Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 98. Let's get straight into it. Uh, this week on the podcast, I have Peter Toe. Before day trading equities, Peter played a lot of online poker and did fairly well for himself. He then dabbled in markets as an investor, but was soon attracted to OTC stocks, after discovering a strange inefficiency. In this episode, we spend quite a bit of time talking about Peter's prop trading experience, both the good and the bad, trading nihilism and doing everything you supposedly shouldn't do, why Peter accepts he's not a cold-blooded assassin and does trade with the influence of emotion. Plus, we briefly touch on Bitcoin towards the end too. Peter writes about a lot of this stuff on his blog, which I feel would have to be one of the best personal trading blogs I've come across. I know if Peter ever decided to write a book one day, it'd be a hit. Uh, you guys can take a look at Peter's blog for yourself at ptotrading.blogspot.com.au. And I also want to mention, I'm doing a Chat with Traders hangout slash get together in Sydney. This will be on Sunday, the 20th of November, 2016. For more info and to RSVP, just go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash Sydney. Okay, that's it. Please welcome my guest, Peter Toe. I mean, I would really like to start this interview by talking to you about your early days playing poker. I mean, at what point did you start playing poker and how did you get into it? Yeah, that was the very beginning. That was, uh, let me count down, uh, 2004. That's when I started playing online poker. Uh, I actually start, I actually got into the game in 2003 after Chris Moneymaker won the 2003, uh, World Series main event. And this was kind of the start of, this is what many people consider the start of like the online poker boom because it was kind of a perfect storm. Online poker started to get popular and there were whole cards uh, introduced on ESPN's uh, televised broadcast of the World Series of Poker. So people could see what hands players would play. And that got a lot of people interested in the game. I think it was like 
2 a.m. on a on a summer summer night. No, no, there wasn't school, and I was just watching ESPN late at night, and I saw these guys play, and I was like, hey, I can do that. I had a pretty competitive drive, uh, and you know, I wasn't really all that athletic. It was like it was just for me. It was just all intellectual power. So I thought, you know, poker was a great fit. Um, and I started playing home games with, uh, older kids from high school, you know, whoever would invite me over and whoever had the chips. Um, and that was a pretty good experience. I, I actually, I took the game pretty seriously. I read a lot of books on Texas Hold'em from, uh, from going to Barnes and Nobles and looking up, uh, anything published by two plus two.com, two plus two publishing. I believe, uh, David Sklansky he wrote like the theory of poker. A lot of his books were like the foundation to my game. And then in, in 2004, I believe I was like uh, 15 years old. I just thought, man, I'm ready to play online. I could, I could, I played like, uh, for, I've played with fake chips and I, and I observed some of the, uh, lower stakes games. And I thought I could beat these games. I could, I could beat these games because it, it's just, poor players who are just gambling. They're just playing every single hand and practically donating their money away. And I'm just like, it's like, why, why are there laws against me? Like being able to go online and take these people's money if they're just giving it away. But, uh, I had to find a way to get the money online. Um, I actually put this into a blog post of mine. Um, I had to sort of deceive my mom into putting money on PayPal thinking I would buy something on eBay. Like she thought it was probably like Pokemon cards or baseball cards. I was actually giving $20 to a $25 to a random stranger on his, uh, proposal that he would transfer $20 through poker stars, player to player fund transfer feature. And that's what happened. I paid that guy $25 so that he can give me $20 of credit. No um, ID needed, no credit card needed. You know, it was, it was really, it really was that it's hard to believe it um, in today's environment with all the legislation against gambling, but you could just get money from someone else. So I started with $20. I lost the initial $20, which is pretty devastating. <laughs> But, uh, um, I actually asked my mom for $50 initially. So I had one more try at it. And the second 20, I, I said, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to play the lowest possible stakes if I have to, which was like, um, like 10 cent big blinds if I had to. And I started to study it even further, you know, and I think initially I had certain assumptions about, you know, if I just played the right hands, you know, the top 15% pre-flop hands and I just play ABC poker or what I thought was ABC poker back then, I could just take money from these people, but that wasn't happening. What was happening is I would wait until I get aces or Kings. I would uh, raise the flop. Everybody would call and <laughs> Some donk would like flip over five three suited uh, with a flush and beat me, and like it seems like I'd I'd be winning twenty thirty percent of the time with these hands and kind of just breaking even and not really going anywhere, not having the bankroll growth that I I anticipated I would have. 
And I did a little more diligent hand analysis on two plus two forums where you could dissect each individual hand by putting your hand history into the into a converter and then you would have other more experienced players kind of critique your line, so to speak, you know, your, uh, you know, like call check, check, raise the river. That's like a line in poker, like, uh, what decisions you made your in the past to get to the end basically. And what it turns out is that I was only half right. I was playing conservatively tight, which is what you need to do at the low stakes. Um, at the lowest stakes when everybody's playing, you know, the worst hands all the time, you need to have that edge. But I wasn't playing as aggressively as I thought as, as I should be. What was happening is that a lot of players, they have this barrier at the lowest stakes where they, they play the right hands, aces and Kings, but they get, they, they, they get busted too often. So they get cynical. They're like, Oh, my aces will always lose. My, my Kings will always lose. I might as well save money. I might as well stop, stop raising the pot. I might as well stop. Um, getting my hand to the showdown. And I didn't realize how much money that cost me. I didn't realize that I had to push flush draws and straight draws, even though I wasn't greater than 50%. I had, I still had like a 20 to 30% chance to win the hand. And when you're in eight way pot, you know, 20 to 30% equity was a huge edge and you had to push it. I was just calling flush draws. I wasn't pumping them and trying to get the pot as big as I could on like a seven, eight way flop. So I learned all these nuances and I, it kind of, I had to reevaluate my whole framework of how to think about a hand and how to think about like, um, expectation. So after that, that breakthrough, I finally started becoming a consistently profitable limit hold'em. And I, I was a limit player. I was like, a, I played both limit and no limit tournament style. I finally became a profitable limit player. I became a profitable no limit player just a little bit later, applying the same analysis and reading the same, you know, the, the, from learning from the same community. I believe I played online poker for like, uh, seriously for like two and a half years. I turned like, uh, $20 into like $20,000. And, you know, I, I could, I could go on about how like I studied the game and that made me a better player over all these terrible players, which is, you know, true. But I also want to make the point that I was very lucky in the sense that I really wasn't that, I didn't really have a lot of innate talent for poker. You know, just just getting the fundamentals right was enough to carry me through because there were so many bad players, man. It was like a poker bubble. It was the poker bubble. It will never be like that again. Like you will never have people making six figures playing a two four limit ever again. And you, and there were people making six figures making two four playing two four limit back then. Uh, if you play two four limit in a casino, you're probably making minimum wage, honestly. So are you still playing poker to this day? Obviously trading is your main focus, but is poker still something you do in the background? I mean, I, I understand it's since become illegal to play online poker in That's the right. States there. What's the deal? I pretty, I'm, I don't play any poker anymore. Okay. Like just none. I, 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 li- I mean, I live in New York city, so there's not a lot of poker casinos. I, I come from, uh, Southern California, where there are a couple places. When I when I do go back to California, I'll I'll play recreationally, but uh, any serious play is pretty much over for me. I think the game has just advanced well beyond my capabilities. Like 
you know, this can be a topic I can go on and on for over because I have, you know, I'm, it's kind of a crossover from poker to trading, but I really think the, like the gambling, you know, the intellectual theory that's out there in gambling and poker is just so much more sophisticated than it is in trading. Even if, it, even if there is more money in trading or at least day, at least a little, the day trading that I do, I'm not talking about like hedge funds or institutions. Like the game has gotten so advanced with what people throw out as uh, this popular phrase now, game theory, optimal, like everybody knows what like the correct line is now for like so many different common situations, I should say. You know what I, I feel like what's and now that like the fundamentals are so widely known, it's almost like it's becoming an efficient market. Like now what carries people through is just like pure talent, the ability to just stand in there and make, you know, make the big bet when people can't or be un unconventional when people can't. Because if you just try to out if you just try to outplay people on fundamentals or betting patterns or taking the correct lines or playing the right math, you just don't have that edge anymore. Too many people know that stuff. Just too many people. So I'm not I'm not interested in playing poker, even if the online opportunity came back to the United States. I wouldn't be interested. I don't. I think the edge is too small. And on top of that, I didn't really have the passion for poker that I initially thought I had. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So I mean, you said there that you made like you turned twenty dollars into twenty thousand dollars. I mean, clearly you were doing something right at the time. Why did you decide to get into trading? Why did you not just stick with poker? Well, it goes back to what I said uh, just a few, uh, just a like a minute ago. I I lost passion for it. You know, I felt like the way I was making money is I'm chasing around these bad players donating their money, and I didn't. It didn't really uh, tap into my competitive drive to the point where I was like, okay, I want to be a world champion, or I want to be a, a high stakes player. I want to be like a you know a really great tournament winner who can make like a million dollars a year through poker. I didn't, I just, I just wanted the easy money. Uh, it burnt me out quickly. The variance in poker is a lot higher, I believe, uh, in trading. And I, you know, I didn't really want to deal with that as well. I guess what le initially led me to stop was when, um, UIGEA went into act around like 2007, like, uh, unlawful gambling enforcement act that's when it just it was just so much harder to move money around so all the bad players stopped putting their money online and you know the just a diminished edge from that standpoint sure so how did you come across trading like was it uh, had it always been something like in the back of your mind while you were playing poker like where did where did the the motive come from to to go into trading i guess while i was playing poker i knew nothing about the stock market uh, like I never even thought about it. It was only until I was in college where, you know, I guess it's just happenstance. My, uh, now best friend who, uh, lived in the dorm next to me, uh, I would talk to him about poker and he would talk to me about like trading and investing. Like he had all these books about, uh, growth investing and, uh, technical analysis up until that point, I had no idea that anybody made any investment decisions based on a chart. It didn't really make any sense to me actually at that time. But he told me that he had been investing in these little small biotechs. Um, and uh, it piqued my interest a little bit because I had stopped playing poker at that point. I never spent that money. And I thought, you know, maybe there's like a natural transition here. 
you know, based off my existing skills and my existing background. Yeah, right. And when you did first get into trading, you weren't really trading as such. You were actually more of an investor type. Is that correct? Like you were following sort of kind of some of the things that obviously your, your friend had been telling you about more of the value investing. Yeah, that's right. I actually had like three, three stages, like one before being an investor. Like, so I got interested around like 08, 09, obviously, because like the headlines are all about how the market is in a panic and going to the lows and Lehman Brothers, et cetera, bailouts, et cetera. Um, so that was a very unique crisis period to be introduced to the markets in the first place. So because of that, the first stage that I was in as a, I'm going to label as a market participant was that I was, it, it kind of leaned on my political biases a little bit. I was basically a gold bug. I was a total crank. I ate up all that stuff from zero hedge, Peter Schiff, Mark Faber, the market's going to like keep tanking. It'll never recover. Um, the, the federal reserve who I just hated, I, they're going to keep printing money and create hyperinflation and all that crap. <laughs> and I was, you know, and so what, it, what my first action as a market participant, you know what I did with my 20, like my 20 K I bought gold coins, actual bullion gold coins. I paid an 8% spread to buy those coins, which is huge. And I didn't even I, like, you know, from my vantage point as an experienced trader, 8% spread is just friggin' huge. There were one ounce, uh, Canadian maple leaves because this, uh, crank forum that I was, Drinking the Kool-Aid from told me that if I bought GLD, the ETF, you know, in the case I ever needed to redeem the gold, I wouldn't be able to because GLD is a scam. So that's the kind of stuff I was eating up uh, <laughs> for like a that's good funny. six months. I laugh about it when I think about it, you know, because I was, I mean, I'm still a big, a big libertarian, but I no longer have those same, I'm going to call fringe economic theories about how the U.S. economy works. I no longer really believe all that. So, you know, I guess I, I guess uh, you can kind of glean back from that and see that I can kind of change my mind quickly. Like just, you know, I, I can buy into something really quickly and then I can at least have the wherewithal to debunk myself because, you know, I, I kept an open mind to look at other forms and eventually level-headed, reasonable people, smart people, seemed to just debunk these guys and show facts and evidence that they were basically, you know, right once every two decades, uh, you know, like a broken clock, once right twice a day, and that they've been screaming about this stuff for, you know, for years. And when you put the math out there and look at the gains that they missed from not being part of the market, I thought, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That you know, there were just people who were just they were just talking heads, and uh, you know, I, I'm just kind of kind of just drinking the Kool Aid on their stuff. Uh, it kind of woke me up a little bit. So my second stage, as you alluded to, I was more of a value investor, growth investor. You know, after that, I sold. You know, I actually bought my gold coins at like a short term top, like it was on like uh, 800 something, and it went down to 700 something. And it got managed to get back to my break even price, and I sold it. Obviously, it went to two thousand afterwards in the next uh, year and a half, which is pretty nuts. But uh, I don't even think about that. It just doesn't matter. 
Uh, the second stage as a value growth investor, I, I, I started reading books off my parents' shelf uh, from Benjamin Graham, you know, the intelligent investor, the Bible of uh, value investing and Peter Lynch's books, which is like the Bible of growth investing, you know, uh, buying what you know, like Amazon, Netflix, brand names that will keep going up, doubling forever in perpetuity, stuff like that. So I, I thought that approach was pretty sound and I just, uh, I didn't really have much of a research method. I was so eager to just like put it in play and thinking, well, we just crashed. Everything's at the lows. Why think like, why, why do research? Why spend time doing research? Why not just buy? So I bought, I bought Apple at like 79 pre-split, which was the day that like Steve Jobs announced his illness. I think that's like the eight year low. I bought Baidu at a hundred something. I bought Wells Fargo at Lowe's. I bought uh, Dow Chemical at Lowe's. I had I had like a portfolio that in hindsight was at rock bottom. And I had stocks that, you know, I had a conservative stock, even the conservative stocks went up like three, four, three, four, four five fold from these prices. But what ended up happening was, you know, I didn't really have the patience to just keep holding. I found out that I didn't have the patience. I, I thought I had the patience, but I did not. I thought I started reading about, I, I read too much about people's uh, opinions on where the market was going to go and they thought the market was going to double dip. And I'm like, well, I'll sell it down. I'll rebuy it. Wrong. That's not, <laughs> you know, that's not, if you're going to be a value investor, don't do it that way, please. You know, it, it, it can make a lot of money if it's the right style. It's, but you know, if you got to commit to it. So, from all of that, despite all my ignorance, I managed to turn 20K into like almost 30. And that actually put me over the pattern day trader rule, which leads me to my third stage, which was when um, I started day trading. Yeah, cool. Well, let's hear about that. How did you, you know, how'd you get started as a day trader now in your third phase? So I gave a little, after a lot more reading and uh, digesting whatever people thought about technical analysis, I decided to give it a shot. Some of it made sense, like in the sense that if you have an existing edge, you can use charts to at least time your existing edge. You, know, you can't just use charts by themselves, in my opinion. And I, I, I guess I sourced a lot of my education from uh, many different backgrounds. Uh, my mom had a retired friend who uh, trades a lot differently than I trade now, but she taught me how to read charts and, you know, kind of structure trades, saying like, uh, like using, just reading candlestick charts. Uh, I joined some online chat rooms that would discuss momentum stocks and penny stocks. I read a lot of different blogs, just kind of learning from all over. It's hard, it's hard to source one particular, um, group. I started to gravitate towards penny stocks because of one particular um, kind of glitch. And I wrote about this in my blog. I call it, you know, the uh, it's called the ARCA low offer. It was on these OTC stocks where pre-market, the market would cross on ARCA like 10 to 20% lower than the previous closing price for no real reason. And then this would just revert back to unchanged at the open. Could you just flesh that out a little more? Just explain what, you, what you're what you referring to there. I know sure. we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, 
which references that blog post. I, I have seen it. It's a great post. All right. So let me, let me start from the beginning. I got attracted to the OTC because there were a lot of like scam stocks and junk stocks and pump and dumps and stocks that would just go up on, you know, just the silliest reasons. And the stock, this, the OTC is different from the listed exchange or uh, the New York Stock Exchange slash NASDAQ because it's, it's a different market. It's not an instantaneous electronic market in the sense that you can just hit a button and get out of your entire position quickly in the sense that you can ping the book, the bid and the offer and fill your orders instantaneously. It was actually a hybrid market where you had one electronic market where you could do that thing. You could ping the book and get instantaneous transactions on Arca. And that, that was half the market. The other half of the market was run by market makers. When, when, when it trades off these market makers, they actually fill you manually. A lot, what would happen was that some quotes would not be honored especially during illiquid rushes or bottlenecks, like whenever there's a panic or a squeeze. Like if you try to ping a 100-share order from a market maker, you might not be able to get it. You, you were probably too late, and they were slow to move the quote. So it made for a very inefficient market, kind of a weird little hybrid market. So what I observed from these OTC stocks is that pre-market – the electronic market was the only market you could trade on, ARCA, where it was instantaneous, just like a listed stock. And a lot of the times on these pump and dump stocks, I don't know if they were deliberately trying to manipulate the stock or mark it down or get everybody to think one thing and then switch it up. It's all speculation, honestly. People always speculate on what the market maker is trying to do. Nobody's actually, nobody really has a clue. But it happened, which is that, say a stock was at a dollar, and it closed at a dollar and there's no news on it, ARCA would come in at like 85 cents to, and you could just pay the offer and you would see the market makers who you cannot make a transaction with until the 9.30 open stay at $1 bid. So you're essentially buying a $1 stock price, temporarily priced at 85 cents due to this weird efficiency or whatever conspiracy theory you want to use to explain it. And this kept happening over and over and over again. And by the time it got to the 9.30 open and Arca, I picked off all of Arca's offers, it would just remain a, market, a normal market. It would, be, uh, it would open at the roughly at the same um, prior close, and I would sell to the market makers right away. I didn't want to wait until something changed. Otherwise, a bottleneck could happen and it wouldn't get filled. But I would just sell it to them, and it, would, it felt like free money. Like, why is this person just giving me this huge discount that I can just unload 90 minutes later at the at the um, equilibrium price or correct price or fair price or whatever you want to call it? It didn't make any sense. It kept happening. And without I wasn't even really making money off classic ABC trading at that point. I was just making all my money off this market inefficiency. So how long did that last for before that inefficiency closed up? I want to say a little less than two years. Then it, beca it slowly became more sparse. I just want to say it didn't really happen on a day-to-day -day basis. You, it happened on certain special stocks that had unusual order flow. 
So it wasn't like I could do this every day and make all the money in the world. It was more like every now and then, a few times a month. And as you came into day trading, what were some of the biggest challenges that you experienced that you encountered, uh, you know, challenges that you had to push through and overcome? I feel like most of the, most of the challenges that I, I, I don't even remember, like, I don't even remember what tra- trading was just such a different ball game. I can tell you about the trading after I moved to New York and started prop trading. Like those are the challenges. The reason I say that is because now I had now without having to lean on that specific glitch, I had to make money like most traders, which is I have to have an idea. I have to be right about it and I have to time it correctly. And that's when, you know, the, the typical psychological, psychological hurdles started to kick in. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Let's just start with how did you actually get into a prop firm like what did you need to be accepted? So I just want to throw out there that I don't want to name the prop firm that I worked at, like, you know, just out of respect for them because I also blog about them and maybe might want to blog about them in the future. And I don't want that affecting anybody like perceptive because I'm a lot of times I'm just trying to be entertaining with what I, what I say. But, uh, so the firm that I joined, which I won't name, uh, what did I need to, to, to join and be accepted. Well, what they asked for was college students who would show an interest in trading and would kind of follow through with that based on their actions. Like they would try to, they would try to paper trade or they would get a small amount of money from family and try to trade that. And because I had basically been trading two years with my own money pretty much almost every day because I was over the pattern day trader rule and skipping class to trade. I was basically a shoe in because I had the track record. I, they requested the track record and I sent them all these pages and they're like, wow. And that was pretty much all I needed. You know, I had a lot more than that. Like I traded, a, I started a trading club in college. Okay. So you didn't need any sort of a certain level of education or any higher education of any form? At this particular firm, no, I didn't. They what they emphasized was some kind of track record or a way to show interest, even if you understandably did not have the money or capital as a college student. Okay. A lot of firms are different. Yeah, yeah. And why did you decide to join a prop firm? What were your motives for doing so? I had read testimonials about this particular prop firm. Uh, at the time, I felt I felt impressed. I thought, you know. If I joined this firm and I was part of their their team, I could I could maybe take the next step in my own trading, and you know I'd be in the financial capital of the world. I'd know people, you know. It seemed like the sky was the limit. 
that's kind of what I thought at that moment. Okay. And, and so is that what it was like? I mean, what was your experience? It was not quite like that. Uh, <laughs> um, so about my prop firm, you know, there were good things and bad things about it. It was a great experience that I would never take back. Uh, so when I first came to my firm, let's call this like firm ABC, they were under an umbrella of a bigger firm. So we had a bunch of like sister branches under this big firm that were kind of unrelated to us, managed by different people. And I'm just going to say that this umbrella firm was not a good, was not a good firm. Like my branch, I feel like the people there were solid. They look, they had an interest in, in my success and in the success of my colleagues, whether they were able to follow through with it or whether we were able to meet their expectations, a different story, but they at least had the sincere interest in our success. Whereas a lot of the firms that I ran into during my time there, I, I don't think they had that interest at all. It was pretty cynical. It was just burn and churn, get, get a guy in, get the commissions and leave him in dust when he blows up. So that big firm, I, I just didn't like how it was run. Uh, there was, there was just, it just feels like there was no real advantage in trading there. They, 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 they have an online presence where they try to, they sell a lot of things and just, just being on the inside, I feel like I can just dispel a lot of what they're selling. They would fine you for the smallest things. They, there were all these regulations and rules that, you know, a retail trader didn't have to deal with. Can you give us an example of some of those rules uh, that you had to deal with that a retail trader uh, wouldn't have to deal with? And also, what sort of things were you getting fined over? Yeah, so one rule would be like, um, based on exchange regulations, they didn't want us trading odd lots. An odd lot is any, like a, like 50 shares or 77 shares or 11 shares or, or three shares instead of 100 or 200 or 300. It's supposed to be round 100 share lots. And anytime, so basically if you, if, if, if you try to trade a higher price stock and you try to take a partial position, you either have to like, you know, you didn't have a lot of options if you're just trading hundred shares. And, and like, sometimes I would like trade like Google and I would I'd trade a hundred share lot. I'd try to sell 50 and they find me $50 over it and you wouldn't have to deal with it if you were a retail trader. I don't, I don't understand. Why was that rule in place? So our firm, the firm was a member of an exchange. I believe it's like the Chicago, the CB, the CBMX, Chicago um, Mercantile Exchange. And they had to comply with certain rules because, you know, I think there's some methods of manipulation that involve odd lot trading because odd lots might not appear on the uh, consolidated time and sales. And to avoid even the appearance of this manipulation, so they didn't have to deal with any questions or inquiries at all, they just outright banned it. And, and the penalty for doing so was basically some kind of fine levied to members of, this, uh, of our firm. So I, I think that's the reason. Right, okay. That's really strange. I've never heard of anything like that, not that I've been involved in the prop world. Yeah, before. I thought it was completely silly. 
I thought it was silly to be honest. Right. But I, I think I think what happens is, you know, when you're a big firm, you're like, hey, we just don't want these headaches. We're just gonna say you can't do this. You can't do that. And there's no room for nuance. There's no they don't want those inquiries at all, even though they probably wouldn't happen. I mean, like I, I buy a hundred shares and I sell fifty shares and, and then I'm out. I mean, do they really is the exchange really gonna like send a big inquiry asking what I'm doing in that situation? Probably not, but they just don't want to deal with it at all. Okay. So, you know, given your experience, it's kind of been a little bit mixed, um, you know, in regard to trading with a prop firm. I often get this question, you know, someone who's listening might email me and they might ask, should they join a prop firm? I mean, I obviously can't really answer that too well, but I think you're probably in a position where you can shine some light on that. I mean, when is it a good idea for an independent trader to go with a prop firm? There's a lot of different variables to come into play, variables about your individual situation and then obviously what the firm has to offer you. For example, if you don't have any capital access whatsoever and that's your like only option, you know, who... I don't want to say I recommend it, but it's like if you really have to trade, then what, what else are you going to do, right? So, but there are many different situations, not just somebody who's in dire straits and doesn't have money. If you're like, let's say you're like a, a decent trader and you can make money on your own, what could a prop trader, or, um, sorry, a prop trading firm possibly offer you? Well, they can offer you more capital to scale up your existing strategies. They can offer proprietary technology that enhances your strategy. I feel like, so I feel like that was what was happening at my, the firm that I was with in the latter half of my prop trading career. So I want to, I want to like establish what happened with my prop trading career for a little bit. Okay. Sure. Go for it. So I just went over like this firm that I disliked, this big umbrella firm that I won't name. So what happened two years after, after like starting that was that my managers kind of were fed up with that umbrella firm and they merged with another existing prop firm. So they went in an entirely different direction. And this was a much better firm. They had, they had, in my opinion, the best, uh, retail trading or not, not, not retail, but the best just execution platform that I've seen. It's completely proprietary. It's not on the market at all. Um, they were much more, there was a much better risk taking culture. Like there was a culture that says, you know, if, if you're a good, if you're a profitable trader, go for it. You know, it's, it's not just we're, we're making money by burning and churning people over and over playing the volume game. The game was raise, raise a consistently profitable trader, make him take risks and, and make money through good trades. And it was, so it was a better culture, better technology, better capitalized. And also, you know, there were existing traders who were making seven figures who were willing to reach out. So that was the positive of my experience. It just, it just kind of did a 180. So I saw, you know, kind of the good and the bad. And I, and I started to understand why some of these seven figure traders didn't make the decision to go independent despite such an amazing track record. It's because some of their strategies, which is far and away from the ABC chart breakout strategy that most people and myself included employ and talk about on Twitter. Some of these strategies depended heavily on the deeper capitalization from the firm and the superior technology of the firm. They could not execute these same strategies using retail platforms. They absolutely could not. 
So I totally understand why they, they there was a, there was a mutually beneficial relationship and that's why they stayed. And that's why I think prop trading has a place for certain traders. Okay. So if a certain trader is thinking about or considering that uh, going into a prop firm might be a, a good a good way to go. What are some of the red flags that they should be aware of before actually joining? You got to ask yourselves, what's their business model? Are they just trying to, are they trying to play the volume game where they get people in and out of the rotating door and make money off commissions? At least, at least when it comes to equity prop shops, it's a little different and I'm less familiar with like, um, like the future shops and option shops in Chicago, but with equities, it's, are they playing the volume game where they just want you in and out or do they have a vested interest in make in raising profitable traders? Are they trying to make money with profitable star traders, much like how like a baseball team tries to grow prospects into superstar players and win a world series. Are, are, is that what they're trying to do? Because if that's what they're trying to do, even, you know, forget about the profit split. It's a great opportunity. They, they have a vested interest. They want to, they want you to succeed. There'll be, there'll be mentoring to, to make sure you succeed. And, you know, if anything, a 50, 50 split, 60, 40 split is more indicative of the fact that they need you to succeed. They're incentivized to make sure you succeed as opposed to like a, something extreme like 95, five. Like if it's 95.5, what do they care if you make a profit or not? They're just trying to churn you. And you got to like go through Glassdoor or go through forums, talk to the people who've been there and ask them what was their experience and like did they actually learn anything from from it or did they just get sucked in without without really knowing anything about the markets in the first place? So there's a lot of shady practices out there. Yeah, so, so just going to the other end of the spectrum – and just so that, you know, someone who's listening to this can has realistic expectations of what to expect from a, a good prop firm or a fair prop firm, you know, what sort of things could a trader expect from a firm that's, that's above board? They're going to have a legitimate training program. They're going to try to start you off slow when you're not consistently profitable. They're not trying to make you trade full size right away. They don't ask for a deposit. I think that's I think that's a big red flag that I, I didn't mention. Um, they provide mentoring from experienced traders who are transparent about their trades, and they're not just making calls and sitting back and, and claiming they know everything about the markets. They they say I made this trade with X amount of shares at X price and made X amount of money. And just your point about the deposit, why would a prop firm ask for a deposit? So a lot of the volume-based business models in prop trading who are just trying to get guys in and out for their commissions, um, those are the type of firms that want deposits. They don't want to take a chance on a trader that he's a smart guy who can make money. They, they're not, they don't want to take that risk. So they ask for a deposit as kind of this uh, safety cushion so, you know, if you blow up your account real quickly on a certain trade, you know, they kind of cover that with that deposit. So they're not really the type of firm that's, it's not indicative of a type of firm that wants to grow star traders, profitable traders. And when you were a prop trader, how much were you influenced by the other traders around you? And was this a good or a bad thing? 
They had a lot of influence. I, again, I, I sourced my trading education from so many people and, you know, that prop trading experience was a bit overall a net beneficial one because I was able to meet, you know, good traders and great traders and learn from them. One thing I want to say was that even though it was a good experience overall, you know, there were some drawbacks. Like, I think our firm in the first couple years, with all, at least with all like the kind of the core traders who were able to last longer than a year at our firm, we kind of stuck together a little bit. There was a lot of groupthink. There was a lot of um, people saying, okay, this is the, the play to be in. And then we all pile into that play and get stopped out. And we all trade alike. And it was a little bit of a herd mentality. And, um, what happened was like, you know, you develop a little cynicism. You're like, ah, oh, we're just, we're just crowding into it and it's going to stop us all out. And, uh, and there wasn't enough variation. So you don't get, you don't get exposure to the, all the different types of trading that may be better for you or your temperament or personality. Like we were all kind of taught like one, like momentum kind of momentum trading style instead of say like um some of the more obscure strategies that i encountered after the merger with the new firm and, you, and it just it just opened my eyes to all the different ways that traders can make money it's not just you know the price action trading that you see on stock twits and you know financial twitter that covers equities like i feel like 80, 90% of it is the same thing. And I do all of that. So I'm not saying it's like not profitable. I'm just saying there's a lot of tunnel vision and in, in like in, in saying that that's the only way to make money is to find a stock, have a thesis and use a chart to time it. More, many different, way more different approaches than that. Right. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about how you are trading today. Like what is the style that you've developed into? Um, how would you describe your, your trading methodology? Well, I've tried to develop a varied playbook of different types of trades so that I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel dependent on one opportunity arising. So I guess in a very broad sense, I, I trade a lot of, uh, short-term price action and I try to generate, I try to generate trading ideas that can give me a big move from the open to the close. Like that's the meat of the move I'm trying to catch. Something that opens high and closes low or something that uh, opens low and closes high and I'm just riding it all day. Like uh, catalyst-driven ideas, stocks with unusual volume, volatile movement, that's what I'm looking for. That tends to be biased towards certain sectors like biotechs, IPOs, uh, microcaps, growth sectors, tech. So I'm looking at those certain stocks and those stocks tend to have kind of the same people trading it, same audience. They're, they're looking for those big moves just like I am. And a lot of the times, like it comes down to just being able to read the psychology of the stock and find the turning points and, and, you know, not being part of the crowd. And it's, it's not that intellectually like, um, deep really. It's, it's it, a lot of it is like you read and react. You use certain tools like short-term charts, five-minute, one-minute candlesticks, volume, the level two, aka reading the tape, uh, 
VWAP, you use all these indicators to try to feel out the short-term supply and demand. And then when things kind of coalesce and, you know, the price action looks right and you have a thesis about where a stock's going to go, that's when things line up. That's when you make your move. So, so that was, that was a lot of rambling. So let me try to give an example. Like, um, uh, I guess, God, so many people do this. They short parabolic penny stocks and I'm just so tired of talking about it. But like, let's say, let's say like, uh, it's the easy example because it's one of my best plays as well. Let's say a stock goes from like one to five over three days and it's a complete junker. And your thesis is that this extended stock is going to collapse like 30, 50%. So how do you just get into, how do you just play out, make your play on that thesis without getting run over by shorting after it went from one to two and then you have to ride it to five? Like, how do you avoid that? Well, that's when your skill comes in. That's when your trading ability comes in. That's what, what you, what I honed for many years comes in, that timing ability of reading the charts, reading the volume, reading the tape and trying to keep risk minimum until the play is ready until that turning point comes and it's ready to collapse. That's what it's all about. So you have an idea and then you try to use the timing to capture the most out of the idea when you're right. And of course you also to also, um, minimize damage when you are wrong or when your timing is off. That's what it comes down to. And it really is just a skill that you hone over many years. It's not that hard to understand, like in terms of the intellectual depth. Yeah, yeah, and and something interesting which you you said at the beginning of your response there, uh, you wanted to create a varied playbook so that there was you know a bunch of different type of plays that um, you could identify and participate in. What was your thought process behind that? Well, I I believe in the equities market, you know, themes. Uh, certain themes go in and out of fashion and when they go out of fashion, there goes the order flow, the, like the order flows out and you want to make money where the, like if you're trading, at least if you're trading my style, momentum based style with unusual volume and a lot of attention, you want to go to where the order flow is. And if you're just, if you're just doing, if you're just, let's say you're only trading those plays where you short the big micro cap. Well, micro caps will go out of favor. And they might not move for a, a, t- a certain time period. How are, it might be uh, several months. It might be one or two, three, four, five months, or maybe barely get any plays in those months. How are you going to be consistent and make take money out of the market on most of those days if you're only depending on that one play? So these themes go in and out of fashion. I think you have to try to trade both sides of themes, like long and short. And you know, sometimes the order flow is in hot IPOs. Sometimes it's in mid-cap earnings breakouts. And those are going to have different audiences. And those are going to trade a little differently. So you're going to have to like have a feel for how they trade. And when they're in fashion, you're making money out of that. When, when the money rotates, you move along, you move along with them. And, you, and, and you're, you're, you're trading the order flow. And you're making money there. And when that money rotates to a different theme you follow along with it. If you're just stuck on one, one type of edge, like, like, like penny stocks, then you're not going to be able to move to where the money is. And you're not going to, and it, it also has, you're not going to be able to develop the skill, the skill that you, 
that you need to with, with, because you're not exposing yourself to the, the stocks that are moving at that time. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, now, as we're talking about your trading style, uh, this was something we briefly spoke about off air and I'm probably going to butcher his name, but I think it's Jimmy Balladimus, Balladimus, something like that. I think that. that's right. You know, I've, I've never even actually heard his okay. name pronounced. Well, now you so have. <laughs> I can't even, I'm not even, that's how I pronounce it. So I assume that's yeah, yeah. correct. <laughs> so he was a, a prop trader who was in, uh, he was the only prop trader who was in Jack Schwager's most recent book, Hedge Fund Wizards. I know you read this book and that chapter in particular, that, that trader in particular, had almost like a lasting impact on you. And I know you wanted to speak about how that had kind of affected you and you, you really liked his ideas on the conventional wisdom and how a lot of his ideas kind of contradicted it. We'd love yes. to hear, yeah. you know, why you kind of resonated with what he spoke about. So the Jimmy Balladimus chapter, I looked it up. It was called uh, Stepping in Front of Freight Trains. You know, <laughs> it's a great title. It's a good title. You know, <laughs> you know, you can read so many books and so many like trading memes off like highly followed accounts. And one of those memes is going to be or one of those sayings is going to be something like never catch a falling knife or you know, don't never fight the trend or the trend. The trend is always your friend. And I'm sure that helps a lot of, I'm sure that helps a lot of people, but man, there are people just making money off these unconventional ways that defy all the conventional wisdom. And I've seen it in real time. I've seen it in, in chat, in the chat rooms, in the prop firms that it gets to the point where I, you know, I've kind of developed this trading nihilism in, in the sense that it almost feels like the process doesn't matter. Like, I mean, it matters, but it's, it's like you have to find the right process for you, which is such a cliche thing to say. And I hate saying that, but it's true. You really have to find the right process for you. And it could just it could be a process that's just so wrong to all the conventional wisdom. And that is why I love that chapter in that book. Because that guy did everything that people say traders shouldn't do. He, he would fight the trend. He would add to his losers. He would take profits on his winners. He would give himself a lot of leeway on, on trades. You, it, it just, it, <laughs> and I, you know, and I was told by other veterans in the prop trading industry, there are guys like that. There are more guys like that than, than, than just him. He's not just this one-of-a-kind savant trader. There are many guys like that. They love to fade big moves and, and make money when the move when the market is clearly wrong, even though we're always trained to think as traders that the market is always right and how you know you'll you'll go insolvent if before the market corrects or all those sayings. But then, you know, even in my own prop firm, the best day that they ever had by far was buying the shit, pardon my language, out of the, the, the fucking flash crash in like 2012. And they put the firm in jeopardy. They put the entire firm in jeopardy and their attitude was it was somebody else's money. But they were like, fuck it, the market's wrong. We're just gonna do it and we're gonna make a bunch of money and that ended up being their best day. <laughs> now, I, I, you know, it's like, what can you say to that from like, just from a judgment on their risk management. Is that right? Is that wrong? 
<laughs> was that did they get lucky? Was that skill? I mean, was I don't know. I don't I don't know. There's no right answer. And that's the, that's like the difference between like gambling and poker. In gambling, you have this mathematical framework where you can pretty much say this decision is wrong, this decision is right. You know, calling this bet is wrong, playing this hand in blackjack was wrong, or et cetera. You don't really have that in trading. You know, so you can get, you just can get completely lost in this hindsight management. You can get lost in wondering whether this once in a lifetime trade that will, will never repeat itself for you, whether you should have played it the right way or not, because it's only going to happen once. This is not like a blackjack hand that's going to happen several times in repetition and you can say, oh, over time it'll play out like this. You have no idea how it's going to play out because it's only going to happen that one time and it's going to be completely different that one time. It didn't – I mean because like – I mean crashes happen over and over, but that crash is going to be different. The 1987 crash, Black Monday, that took much longer to correct. But now we're in an electronic market where things melt up quickly and make back their gains on low volume. And so the flash crash was nothing like 1987. It corrected the same like within two or three days, which is just insane to me. So it's like in some sense I get lost in wondering what is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing to do? It's trading nihilism because so many people have done it the quote unquote wrong way that, you know, I feel like you got to throw the book out sometimes. Yeah, I love that. I like that sort of breaking out of the mold. Um, I like how you described it as yeah. trading nihilism too. I think that's that's a really cool way it, to put it. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know if it's affected my trading. Like it, it's, it's, it's given me some good moments where like sometimes like I, I would, I would trade a certain way and I would write down in my journal, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to trail in when it breaks VWAP. You have to take profits when it, it moves a certain standard deviation from from its like opening range or whatever. And then there are times where I'm like, fuck this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold everything because I think it's going to work. And it's all gut instinct. And, you know, and then there are times where I do that and it blows up in my face and I'm like, fuck it. I should have just, I should have just stuck with what I usually do 80% of the time. And it's like, how can you, how can you write down in your journal whether you, you did the right thing or the wrong thing? People are always saying, if you, if you do the, if you did the right thing, it doesn't matter whether you, you won or lost money. And that's true, but how can you tell? You know, it, because it's not gambling, it's not poker where you have a clear framework to evaluate everything. That's true. That's you just true. Can't tell. So, how do you find conviction in what you do? And I mean, do you have any sort of tips and pointers for how other traders might find conviction in their own process, their own way of doing things? Oh boy, conviction. That's a, that's a topic, man. Or does a lot of it come from experience and intuition? I mean, oh, absolutely. It comes from experience. It comes from how your experiences develop. That intuition. Yeah, basically, you know, <laughs> it comes from repeated observation of circumstances, you know, situations playing out a certain way over and over and over again. And that when you see it happen in real time, you know, it's good. Then it's like that added conviction that it's acting right for you. So, and you know what? Some people don't even need that. Some people just have all their conviction on their idea and they, and they're, and they just, they just barely trade the price. They're barely sensitive to the price action. Whereas I am a little more sensitive to the price action. I want the price action to kind of show me that we're about to, this is go time right now. Like I need, I kind of need that to, I kind of need that oomph where once, once I see that turning point, then I'm sorry, I'm starting to like go all in. I'm like, I just, 
you know, this used to be a really hard thing for me because, you know, what I struggled with when I first started in prop trading was not profitability or consistency. I was consistently profitable right away, like, which is pretty rare, but I made nothing. I made like, like I didn't even make enough to like uh, get past living costs because I was such a piker. I was like, um, scalping around. I was taking profits quickly and like, I, I just, I was hit and miss and I, I just could not put it all together to make like actual real money. And it, it just, it just took a long time. I don't even know how I got to the point where I am now where I'm able to like take pain on certain stocks for a certain amount of time and let it play out. I really don't even know how that happened. It doesn't happen by design where I'm like, there's a careful process where I'm going to make myself do all of this and it's going to happen that way. It just happened through experience and through like trial by fire. Like my, my instincts just get honed through repeated experience to the point where my emotions kind of work for me. Like I'm a very emotional person. And it's funny because I say that, I say that because I was just talking to somebody and he was like, you know, I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised at reading your blog, how emotional you are. I thought a trader is supposed to be like a, like a cold blooded assassin. I'm like, no, fuck no. I'm, I'm like a big head case. But these observations kind of give me like an emotional experience that help me in the trade. They don't hurt me in the trade by making me panic. They, they help me because I'm like, I know this is what it's about to happen based on all the, all the, the bullshit and the pain and the fire that I've been through. I know this is about to happen. I'm going to get greedy. I'm going to allow myself to emotionally get greedy and that's going to help me in this trade. That's going to help me trade to win instead of trading to take profits and be green on the day. It's a totally different mindset. And those are my best days. Those are the days where trading is just awesome. And I, you know, it's just like, I, I can't get enough of it, but it's also the days that can occasionally blow up my, my face and become the worst days too. So, you know, it's a trade off. Well, let's get into that a bit more. I think that's that's really interesting how you kind of embrace the fact that you aren't a, a cold-blooded assassin as you described it um, and that you do allow your emotion to get to affect your trading in some ways. Um, and I was reading on your blog uh, before we got on this call and to anyone who hasn't seen your blog, I strongly encourage you to check it out. It's, it's incredible. You, you. <laughs> you do, you do a really awesome job of it. You spoke about a point, uh, at the end of 2015, where you took your longest break from trading, you kind of like lost confidence in, in what you were doing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened? It really wasn't anything crazy. Like in hindsight, it really wasn't anything crazy worth like I'm going to like the F the, the Fannie Mae trade that I made, which is my most popular blog post, which is my big, also my biggest loss ever. That was a crazy thing that happened. You know, that's one of those, where did that come from type of loss? Um, what happened in November of 2015 when I took that break is I think it was just a really gradual buildup where, you know, I was, I was, I would have these on off periods where I would just get get into trading, get burned out, get into trading. I would take like a one week break and then a few months later, a two week break. And then a few months later, a three week break. And in November, I, it, you know, my emotions were kind of like at highs and lows simultaneously. So it kind of exacerbated that effect because I had made my best trade in the first two weeks of November by shorting this, uh, biotech, uh, AVXL. And then I gave back, more than half of that money by just being an idiot 
you know, and like just donking away money by God. And, you know, it just built up all this, like all these negative emotions that I couldn't, I just couldn't really deal with at that time. I, you know, I would wake up and I'd feel all this dread about trading and I'd be like, I'm, I'm sleeping in today. I just, I don't want to have to deal with my mistakes from yesterday. And that's one of my, like kind of one of my weaknesses. A lot of, a lot of really good traders I admire. I'm, I'm, I'm like totally jealous of this. They're just, they just treat things like, Oh, I lost. I lost a ton of money, but hey, next day is a new day, right? You know, I can tweet that. I can say that, but it will never actually be that sincere feeling that I feel inside. You know, I, I can, I can carry a lot of baggage with me, and you know, I'm a bit of a front runner. I, that's why consistency is very important to me, like make, being green almost all the time. Because when things kind of, when the wheels fall off, like I start, I get really, really hard on myself. I. I start to feel that self-doubt, you know, creeping in, and it just becomes impossible to trade. So I decided I have to take a break. I can't take this anymore. I hate trading. You know, it's a love-hate relationship. I hated it. <laughs> so it wasn't anything crazy. It was just bad trading. You know, run-of-the-mill bad trading. Right. And is is taking breaks something that you like consciously decided that you were going to do, or is it just something that, you know? Like you said, these these mistakes kept kind of happening and you just didn't want to face them and you just kind of got to a point where you couldn't be bothered. So you're like, I'm not trading this week. Or was it an actual, something that was predetermined as like a, a good thing that you would have a, a week away from trading? When a boxer gets like knocked out by a punch, did he decide to lay down in advance? <laughs> That's how I want to put it. That's just the visual that came to my mind. <laughs> Okay. You know, you just reach, you just reach your limit and then you're done. Like, I mean, that's, that's, that's how it is for me. You know, I didn't, I didn't calmly sit aside and say, okay, I'll just take a, a loose period and it'll be like, and then everything will be okay afterwards. It's just like, I, I'm just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know? And like, I don't know when I'm going to come back and trade. I really don't. Like maybe I'll never trade. I, I started having these worries that I'll never trade again. And I think that's what makes me trade again. So I'm always kind of on that emotional edge. In fact, I'm on that edge right now. I actually did have my worst month this October. It's my only red month. So I'm actually kind of on that edge. Not not to the same extent because I've had a good year overall. But still, I'm, de- I'm actually dealing it right now as, as, as kind of as we speak. So why do you think that October was your worst month? Is there any anything you can pinpoint that to? I started trading these OTC names again. You know, they used to be so so um, so lucrative for me. I haven't been trading them for what feels like two years because the order flow just died and people moved on. And then they started trading again, and they were just unf- they just became like, I mean, they were so, they, the way they traded. It was just so crazy. Like the market makers take away all these routes. And you can only route through Arca, and it's like it's just so hard to get in and out of the stocks. I, whereas like filling, executing on the OTC used to be a strength. It just became a sudden liability. I would get into the size, and I couldn't get out of it. And so if I thought I was risking X, I ended up realizing a loss of three X, and that just kept happening. And that got to me emotionally, and I started revenge trading, and it just became like this terrible spiral. And uh, yeah, so there are structural reasons why I lost the money. I feel like I kind of ran into a buzzsaw in some sense. But in, all, it, but in another sense, there's some indeterminate percentage of my losses that I would attribute to myself. And just 
I took existing losses. I probably made them a little worse. But, another, it, but for the most part, I think there was no way to avoid that buzzsaw, honestly. It, I, I could have made better adjustments for sure. But, uh, I mean, I, I kind of built like a muscle memory and how to trade certain stocks. And it just totally betrayed me in this circumstance. Right. So, you know, going forward for the rest of the year, obviously recording this uh, at the beginning of November 2016, you know, do you plan on doing anything differently or are you just going to keep uh, keep grinding it out? I'm just going to keep grinding it out. I'm going to try to stay away from the OTZ, to be honest. Now, reading around um, on your blog before we uh, got on this call, there was something I read on a couple of your posts and you talked about how you perhaps weren't pushing yourself as hard as you should or going as hard as you could. Would you mind sort of talking to us a little bit about your thoughts around that? Yeah, when I compare my myself right now to myself like four years ago when I first moved here, like I feel like I was kind of like the model. Back then I was kind of like the model trader to emulate or at least starting trader to emulate. I did things the right way. I kept a detailed journal. I come up with very detailed trading plans right away. I, I, I'd wake up like at seven o'clock when the open was at like, like nine 30, I would trade the entire day and try to make, try to have detailed observations and learn from everything. I'd go with, I'd go through a detailed trade re, trading review at the end of the day. Um, I was obsessed with trading and I, I, I just wanted nothing more than to keep pushing myself, set, set goals. And now I'm like, kind of ashamed to admit it, but I'm now I'm like the worst role model for like a, if, if I had to like teach aspiring traders like on a daily basis, I'd, I'd be such a horrible role model. I just kind of like roll out and and just wing it, I'd be like, okay, what's the, what are, what are, I'd look at my filters. And I'd be like, okay, those, those three socks look good. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bag into it. I'm gonna figure it out on the fly and I'll just play out, play it on my, like play on my gut instinct, see what happens. And it works out more often than not actually, <laughs> which is what keeps reinforcing the bad habits. And I feel there are a lot of things I can get better at and I'm not, sometimes I don't consciously try to think about it cause it's like, it becomes a little burden. You know, I, Oh, it kills me to say this because I'm, I feel like I'm betraying the 22-year-old the me who was just all about like excellent habits and pushing myself and, and all those things that people are, should be proud to do and proud to say. But like in some sense, trying less hard is taking the pressure off of me. And I'm, my results are, you know, uh, aside from this month, are like as, as good as ever because I just – I take the pressure off myself and I don't trade as tight. You know, I, I can get pretty tight on my risk tolerance. I don't really have a naturally high risk tolerance. It took a lot of work and, and trial and to, to just get it to where it is now so that I don't get shaken out so easily. And, and I still, it still happens. But for, because of that, I, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my mental energy is just dedicated to making sure I feel relaxed, pressure free. I can just like let things go. Money's not an issue, you know, um, and and just just let it be you know free and open and easy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I really appreciate you being so honest, Peter. I think this is really cool. You know, this might be a bit of a strange question, but you know, for someone who has been doing this for however many years now, 
you're, you're profitable most months um, or pretty much every month except last month. Um, yeah. Has trading become quote unquote easy for you? No. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's like deceivingly easy and then they change it up on you. It's just, uh, and that's what makes sure, that's what ensures that on the, on the, the grand scheme, it's never that easy. I feel like when markets, markets can change up even a little bit, even if your strategy still works, your timing method might be, your timing, your, your usual timing method might not work. Even if, even if your, your, your grand strategy works, your timing method might be really inefficient or it might lead to more shakeouts and stopouts. It might be like, what, like less optimal and that, that gives, that drives me to a lot of headaches where, you know, I kind of have like a, a template to execute a certain stock. I kind of follow that mental template and then the stock trades in such a, in this crazy way where if I just did the opposite of that, not in the sense that I switched my buys up, but if I, if I had a, if I did the same execution, but I had the opposite idea instead of like, um, instead of following that template, I did kind of the different, a different way. It would have worked out instead of getting me stopped out. And that's what, that's what drives me insane. And that's what makes it never that easy. That's what makes scaling up hard because I can never really follow that mental template all the time, knowing that they're, they're going to change it up. They're going to find a way to make the improbable happen to keep me on my toes. Okay. Yeah. I was just interested to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, it might probably a bit of a strange question, but uh, anyway, we're getting on a bit here. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to uh, speak with you about briefly, and that's uh, Bitcoin. What are your thoughts around trading Bitcoin? I know this is something you've dabbled in. Um, what do you like and not like about Bitcoin? I want to say what I used to like about Bitcoin was that it was just this new fascinating phenomenon two years ago. And anytime you, you have a new fascinating phenomenon, you have insane trading volatility, insane emotion, and anybody who is skilled at trading at trading those type of environments, which is what I cut my teeth on, can make a lot of money. And that's what attracted to me in the first place. Like a friend of mine at my firm showed me the chart, and I didn't even I didn't even know what a Bitcoin was, but I saw the chart. I'm like, holy shit! I got I got in. I got to trade that, and it traded much like the momentum names the. Uh, you know, the hype names that I trade that, you know, they kind of have a certain psychology and certain subsets of patterns to them. And I was doing great at it. So that's what I liked about it initially that attracted me to trading it. I feel it does not have that same level of, of craziness that it did two years ago because it kind of sunk in. People have learned about it and, you know, um, it's kind of a bit more entrenched. So you, if you look at the day-to-day -day chart, it doesn't have the same type of range. And what I... Real, that's that's only a minor problem compared to the serious problem of exchange security. The exchange that I traded almost all my volume on for like two years, Bitfinex got hacked for you know millions of dollars worth of bitcoins, and their solution to that problem because they're not regulated and they don't have to like they can just come up with the solution on their own and and force you into it is that they made everybody take a 35% haircut across the board whether you were a cash holder or a bitcoin holder or a litecoin holder like they just made everybody take a 35% haircut and i just and it's not just bitfinex it's multiple exchanges 
So I just don't feel safe as a short-term trader. You know, I used to just leave my, my money in there thinking, oh, okay, if there's a crash, I can wake up and trade the volatility and make some money. How can I do that if I think like I can wake up and see that attack and I just lost half of it? You know, it's a different ball game if you're a longer term time frame trader because you can just store your bitcoins in a wallet and see how it plays out. But for me, I just I was just in it for trading, long and short. I didn't care where what happens to Bitcoin in the future. And for me, it's not safe anymore. Yeah. So why are these Bitcoin exchanges so much more vulnerable to hacks like that over you know? other exchanges like for equities and futures and that type of thing? I'm not the most technologically sophisticated to give a great answer to that. My answer would just be there. there's just less money and less and, and inferior infrastructure and security in those and, 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 and security procedures in those exchanges. Whereas like, you know, stock exchanges have been around for forever and, you know, there, there's a lot of government organ oversight and they've kind of created certain practices to prevent this from happening. And, uh, and honestly, it's like, like how could, it's not like you, you, I don't know how the equivalent of stealing a stock certificate from a vault can be applied to like stealing bitcoins from an exchange, you know, because like, if you even if some guy stole the underlying certificates, it's, it would still be recorded on a bunch of different ledgers that the stock was in your name, right? That's true. So the same thing, the same thing can't really happen with these these bitcoins, where nobody really knows who owns any of it. It's not logged to anybody. It's just all part of that exchange. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, no plans on getting back into Bitcoin anytime soon? Not for now. No. <laughs> Those days are over. <laughs> Unfort I, you know, I hope they're not over. I hope I can come back. I mean, I want, I want there to be come back because it means there's opportunity. But I think you, I gotta be prudent with my money. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Well, Peter, let's leave it at that for now. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to do the podcast. I know I've been hassling you for quite a while, so um, I'm pleased I could finally uh, twist your arm enough to to get you on. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? Just go to my blog, peterktoe.blogspot.com. Uh, I got to write more, but uh, you know, some of, the, some of the existing posts are good, I guess. And that's, that's about it. And I have my Twitter linked on there, uh, Peter K. Toe. It's just my name. And that's it. Okay, excellent. And like I said earlier, guys, definitely check out Peter's blog. Uh, he does an incredible job of it. Uh, some really badass illustrations too. <laughs> um, good for a laugh. And... Yeah, I think that's it. Let's call it a wrap. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot, Aaron. It was a blast. Thanks. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.